Well, good evening, everyone. Welcome to an episode of Talk Gnosis After Dark. We are continuing our discussion on the secret book of John and its contemplation with Bishop Tim Mansfield, Bishop of the AJC in Australia. Welcome, Bishop Mansfield. How are you this evening? Thank you, Bishop. And I'm well. I'm well. So. And as usual, being joined by Bishop Peterson as well as Father Tony. Um, I got to tell you, I was fascinated. I just, uh, during our uh, video show, um, just sitting back, listening to you, uh, giving a little bit of the narrative of uh, of the secret book of John and a little bit of its history for our viewers. Uh, um, I think I was just, you know, listening to all your words and getting all these great visuals as you're <laughs> describing, you know, this process of, uh, of creation from the monad, uh, I think was totally fascinating but one of the things you know we didn't get into in the video show which we were planning on was um you know sort of the spirit some of the spiritual practices as well as you know some of the uh, uh contemplations and things that uh that you do regarding um you know uh this particular book is um there anything in particular over the secret book of john um that gives various forms of implications of types of spiritual practices and different stages that, you know, you recommend to your own students or members of your own congregation? Yeah, I, I think it does, but I don't think it does it directly because, okay. um, good question. <laughs> Cause that is what I mean. If you, I think one of the things people tend to find frustrating, I mean, it's generally frustrating if you're in any of the Christian spiritual traditions and it's particularly frustrating if you're a Gnostic that there doesn't seem to be a lot of guidance about how to actually do spiritual practice. I mean, even for, even for mainstream Christians, there's not a lot of guidance about how to engage in deep spiritual practice. If you've had, if you spent any time in a Buddhist Sangha, you're used to really specific practice descriptions, right? Yeah. Very, you know, you've got a teacher and they give you, you know, you sit here and you do this and you do this with your breath and you count this many times and, you know, you focus your attention on this thing and, and okay, stick with that for the next few years and get back to me. But, Christianity broadly and, and Gnosticism, however you want to intersect that with Christianity, uh, is, is a little short on those very specific descriptions. So I think a lot of people, when they go into the Najamadi books, um, are kind of craving some more firm guidance on how you go about spiritual practice. And it disappoints. There is no, <laughs> there yeah. are no five-step um, injunctions on how to go about doing spiritual practice. Because mm -hmm. I think that's the wrong way to look at it. That's not a... That's not the way that, um, that things got taught. Things got taught teacher to student in a school context. Um, mm -hmm. They didn't generally get written down. Right. A book like Secret John, um, a book like Secret John was intended for students who were already associated with a teacher, who already had a spiritual guide, who was giving them face-to-face -face instruction on, on contemplative prayer. Mm -hmm. The book would have helped do what, what uh, Bishop Peterson and I were talking about during the, the video show, the, the book helps to illuminate the student's practice and the practice helps to ground the text of the book. The book's not mm -hmm. meant to be an instruction manual on its own. Again, because we come from Gnost the world of Gnosticism for dummies and recipe books, we, we mm -hmm. kind of read books, you know, waiting for the, mm -hmm. the quick instructional, and that's not what we get. Mm -hmm. What we do get, though, is a really detailed description of the, the layers of phenomenal reality as we encounter it, mm -hmm. the different ways in which the divine and various spirits appear to us in phenomenal reality in our experience, mm 
mm-hmm. and a very detailed, a fairly detailed description of the of the components of the kind of spiritual anatomy of the human being, and the, our our beginning situation as we start the journey. So it's the combination of those things that make implications about types of spiritual practice that that are useful, I think, and types of spiritual practice that we need to engage with perhaps a little more cautiously, not, not to not do them, but to kind of be aware of the dangers of, of doing them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a little unusual. Like it's not, it, the, the thing that makes Gnostic material in general kind of interesting is it's very alert to the possibilities of spiritual danger, mm-hmm. which is an odd thing when, you, when you've, if you've been part of the, the sort of new age movement in the last 20 or 30 years and you've come to a spiritual life through that, that direction, um, there's a, you know, it's kind of all in and it's all good and everything's beautiful and all these different texts all point to the same thing and it's many paths to the top of the mountain and it's all good. And, th- and there's a truth to that. It's not, mm-hmm. That's not an illegitimate thing to say. But then when you strike something like Secret John, it's very specific that you can encounter things which appear to be divine, but those things want to hurt you. <laughs> mm-hmm. yes. Or at least if they don't want to hurt if, if, maybe they don't want to hurt you, but they certainly don't want you to be free. Mm-hmm. And they don't particularly like you either. They don't particularly like you. Well, they're not particularly. In- I mean, you're just not very interesting. Well, I mean, okay. if you, you know, I think they're jealous of you. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of points in the story of you know in the narrative of the Secret Book of John where the the archons and the demiurge see that this this their creation has more light than they do, and yeah. you know is is better you know in, in yeah. a lot of ways than they are. So that's why they keep trying to trap this you know being in further and further. Uh, layers of crap around it, you know, yeah. all the way down to where it gets trapped in matter as kind of the final prison. And even I'm that doesn't work. Gov- I'm from the government and I'm here to help you. <laughs> yeah. oh, you know, we all know about that line. Um, yeah. Absolutely. So, um, I think what we, what we get out of that is, so it, uh, I think that gives us some guidance on, on where we need to be looking in terms of doing spiritual practice. Um, mm-hmm. So one of the things Karen King's really good, Karen King's book, The Secret Revelation of John's, absolutely terrific. She, it's, got a, it's got a nice comparative translation of several versions of the book. Um, and she goes through a lot of really good scholarly work to kind of connect aspects of what's in the text with other traditions that were around at the time and other books that were around at the time. She connects it to the Gospel of John, she connects it to Genesis, she connects it to the to the Timaeus and to Neoplatonism, um, she connects it to a bunch of other stuff, and it, it, she lays out this... Did we lose him? We lost... <laughs> lost, lost his audio. Australia. Well, yeah, we just <laughs> lost our friend in Australia, I believe. Well, he is from the future, so... Yeah. <laughs> so I think I, I'm... I'm probably able to finish his thought, um, although it seems to be... Oh, is I'm it, back. Oh, he's back. You're back. Okay. Yep. He can That's finish uh, his own the, thought, then. Skype, uh, Skype feels that if you start mentioning literary criticism, you should get cut off, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I tell, tell our producer, Jonathan, to edit that out, but nah. <laughs> Fix it in post. It's yeah. all good. It connects to these other works... Tactically, right, and it, it's it's connecting to to um, the books of Moses, and it's it's connecting to other ideas that are in the, you know, because Alexandria was a little New Age itself. There was a, there was an awful lot of crazy spiritual ideas flowing from all over the place. There's some archaeological evidence that there were Mahayana Buddhists in Alexandria in the first century, right? So, all right, okay, there's people from all over the place. Um, 
and a lot of those different spiritualities, the, I think the authors of Secret John were concerned to place things in a context where the student could understand that some of these ideas were beneficial and some of these ideas were potentially harmful. And it's trying to tell a story that helps the student to orient towards different ideas in different ways. This is a roundabout way of answering your question, Ken, but um, so part of the concern of the book is to point to approaches that, that the student should be wary of. So one good example, the archons who are talked about in the creation of the human soul mm -hmm. are seven in number. Now, no esotericist looks at any body of spiritual beings that are seven in number without thinking about the, the Babylonian astrological system and the seven planetary spirits. Okay, right. so this is, it's kind of like ding, 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 pay attention, this is the, <laughs> this is the Babylonian system. And what we're told about those, those spirits, we're told several things. One is that their primary concern and their involvement in the human soul has been to create a prison, mm -hmm. which they control. Mm -hmm. um, so they're malign. The second thing is that there are higher entities than them that have control over them, mm -hmm. and that the entities, these seven spiritual entities have dual names. There's the name in which they operate as powerful beings, but there's the name by which they're subdued by the entities above them. Mm -hmm. And we learn that they're the, they're the architects of the human soul. And the soul in this sense, in, in the way the Secret John is talking about it, is probably more accurately translated as, as what we think of when we talk about mind mm -hmm. in, in yeah. modern English. So it's the stuff in your head, right? Mm -hmm. So that tells us various things. Um, one is that, you know, there's a lot of uh, fairly wishy-washy spirituality that says, oh, you know, you've just got to get away from materialism. You've got to, like, trust your feelings and trust your heart. <laughs> Turn within and, and your inner guidance will... If you spend any time watching Oprah, this is the kind of stuff you hear a lot of. Right. What Secrets John, Secret John is telling us that if you turn away from... Sure, turn away from materiality because that's really just distracting. But then the next thing that happens when you turn your attention within yourself and you start examining the contents of your, of your soul, what you discover is riotous passions vying for control of absolutely everyone around you, yourself, everyone in your life and the entire world. And at the head of it all, there's a being which ultimately wants to dominate absolutely everything if you'll let it get away with it. Um, it's not good in there. It's, it's an ugly, violent, um, autocratic realm. It's like living in... Cambodia under Pol Pot on the inside of your mind. <laughs> and you should you should do your best to get out of there because it's never going to be fun. Mm -hmm. I think I think what we're getting told, you know, is that, that what's in the human being, as above, so below, right? The the right. macrocosm and the microcosm are mirrors of each other. So the the cosmology that we're getting told is mimicked in the in the anatomy, the interior anatomy of the human being. Mm -hmm. So the the very first thing you discover when you turn away from materiality is mess and drama and passion and and kind of horror and control and this this ugly family drama on the inside. Mm -hmm. So that makes it really problematic to say that then the very next thing you ought to do is go and offer devotions to the Olympian gods, for instance, as was common at this time, because the Olympian gods don't have your best interests at heart. They're your jailers. The planetary spirits are your jailers. They're interested in you reigning subdued and under their thumb. They're not interested in your liberation. So you've got to take, if you're going to do, so, okay, this tells us, I think, if you're going to do planetary work, if you're going to um, engage with the planetary archangels or planetary spirits, and there's a lot of this kind of work going around at the moment, and a lot of it's very good. Uh, Rufus Opus has a new book out about, about yes. this stuff. He um, does. Which has been doing the round of the esoteric blogosphere at the moment, and I love his work. It's really great. But the essence of what makes his work credible is that the stance that he takes to the planetary archangels is as a peer. 
they're not the boss. They're fellow workers in the kingdom of God. And that's pointing in exactly the same direction, I think, as Secret John. That you don't bow down to them and treat them as bosses or masters. You meet them as peers or perhaps even as servants mm-hmm. because their status in the, in the spiritual realms is slightly less than yours. Mm-hmm. So you've got to take an authoritative stance with respect to them. That's one thing. Mm-hmm. I think the second thing is I think it makes problematic the practice of devotional prayer. The, which is a, a Christian classic of kind of, you know, crashing to your knees, saying the rosary, praying to God, asking for God's forgiveness, asking for mercy. Um, I am but a worthless worm before you, O Lord. Please, you know, bow down your compassion upon me and release oh me from Lord, my sins. please don't burn us. <laughs> Mon- both Monty Python and Not the Nine O'Clock News have done some lovely versions of, of this <laughs> tradition. Yeah. And there is a lot of value to cultivating the kind of humility that comes out of this practice. But and I'm not dissing it because I've done it myself. Right? And I, I, there are times in, in one spiritual journey where that stuff's really appropriate. But the big issue is who are you submitting to? Mm-hmm. What, is the, what is this God? Which God are you praying to? Because there are multiple candidates in the world of Secret John. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. You encounter a, a grand and spiritually powerful entity, and it doesn't necessarily mean it's the kind of entity you ought to be um, bowing down to. In fact, one of the huge distinctions between the world of the First Father and the realm of the Aeons, the higher spiritual realm, mm-hmm. and the world of the Demiurge and the Archons, the lower spiritual realm, when you read the language that's used about the two of them, everything in the lower realm, in the, in the realm of the Demiurge, is characterized by subjugation, domination, authority, power, and submission. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Everything in the upper realm, the language used is really different. So when Barbalo wants to create something, she um, requests it of the father, and the father consents. He doesn't order anything. He never demands. He never forces. No one ever submits. They request, and he assents. So there's this mm-hmm. subtle gentle kind of harmony and flow that mm-hmm. so it's 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 power in a more consensual sense in the upper realm there's also so, a, oh, no, go ahead Bishop. i was just going to say the, the the idea is is that when somebody requests they've come up with the idea for themselves they've not been told what's good for them it's it's, it's something that's coming from them then therefore they're making the request and they feel comfortable making the request yeah, I, I noticed a, that as there's well. There's a rightness to it, right? There's yes. A, it mm-hmm. feels, you can sort of feel, oh, this is the right thing to have happen. And then the consent is the divine power aligning itself with that request that's come internally. Yes. Mm-hmm. There's also a, uh, a question of, of harmony in the, in the hierarchy as well. And uh, Karen King does a good job of, of explaining this, that in the, in the realm of the Pleroma, Everything is well ordered and exactly as it should be, and there's a hierarchy that go, that flows in the proper direction from the top down. Um, but because of the the split, because of Sophia's error, um, the hierarchy is broken and is reversed in the lower realm, and and that is kind of the the primary source of of all of our discomfort is the fact that you know we are down below where we should be in this kind of divinely ordered. Uh, you know, pleroma, and so part of the work of the Gnostic is to restore your place in this, you know, your proper place in this this system. I think that's absolutely correct. I, 
I mean, and, and to take that further, I think absolutely everything that happens in the realm of the archons in the book is a broken mimicry of something that happened earlier in the Pleroma. Yeah. In the book. So every, every single action the Demiurge or any of the archons take, you can find a, a precursor to it in the earlier part of the book. And when you line them up, the work in the earlier part of the book is always supremely effective, perfectly balanced, and beautiful. Mm-hmm. And the broken mimicry that happens in the realm of the Archons is always kind of slipshod, a bit Keystone Cops, kind of mucked up, <laughs> and ultimately ineffective, right? I mean, they go to an enormous amount of work to entrap us, and everything comes to nothing. Every, every action they take ultimately comes to nothing. It's all fruitless. Yeah, it's this interesting chess game between the Demiurge and, uh, you know, Barbello through her, um, you know, her, her subordinates, that every time the, the Demiurge gets mad and seeks to, you know, oppress the human further, the, the divine realms come in and do something else, and it's this back and forth, this kind of cat and mouse game, if you will. Absolutely. So I think that it, in terms of, so to, okay, so there's all this sort of critique of, of other ways of going about spirituality, and that's a big part of it. And I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. this is a very long way around, Ken, because you, you actually said, you, your question to me originally was, what does this actually mean in terms of what you actually do in practice? Mm-hmm. And that's, that, is the, that is the nub of this. So other than, other than being very cautious and using the book as a way to, to problematize things that might seem unproblematic, the, mm-hmm. the other thing I think is to focus, you know, the goal of this is the pleroma. Mm-hmm. The goal of this is to be to to bring oneself to an awareness of one's place in the fullness of God, mm-hmm. in in the higher spiritual realm, or the inner spiritual realm, to think of it a different way, maybe, be closer to the Father. Um, now that word pleroma is interesting. It's it's almost always translated as fullness when they translate it into English, but you can mm-hmm. also translate it quite reasonably as perfection. So it and perfection not in the sense of everything being neat and lined up, perfection in the sense of having reached the fullness of its unfolding, Mm -hmm. of being complete and in balance and in harmony. This is really interesting because at some point, I think in the Gospel of Matthew, I might be getting this wrong because my New Testament's not the best for someone that's apparently a bishop. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That's a canonical New Testament. Who cares about that? Um, Christ says... Be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Mm-hmm. And he's, when you, the Greek, I, can't, I actually can't remember the Greek word he uses. It, it, might, it might be related to pleroma. But when you, when you read the Greek, he's not saying, straighten up and fly right. Get all the rules correct. He's saying, come to fruition. Yes. Be complete as your Father in heaven is complete. Mm-hmm. Which resonates really beautifully with, with what we're getting told in Secret John. Mm-hmm. So what does that really mean in terms of practice? What we get from that discussion of the monad at the earlier stage in the book is the sense that God is being itself. The highest form of divinity, which we're told about in the book, is this underlying oneness that unites all things. It is, it is the very fabric of being itself. Mm-hmm. I think that notion is really fascinating because, you know, the, the Nicene Creed says Christ is of one being with the Father. Yes. Mm-hmm. So Christ is grounded in this same oneness of being as, as the Father. And mm-hmm. we are grounded in that same oneness of being with, with all of these creatures. The mm-hmm. delusion that we're trapped in as a result of the, the creation of the Demiurge is that there's 
some struggle we've got to engage in. And as soon as you start to think about struggle, right, or fight, or opposition, or, or that's, that's iconic language. All of those notions are iconic notions. The very notion that you're struggling with spiritual entities for freedom is itself an iconic notion. Because that's their world, is all about struggle, strife, and war. The higher realms of the Pleroma is all about harmony and oneness with the First Father. So anytime we take on a spiritual practice which is characterized by struggling with something, it may be effective up to a point. And there's a lot of good spiritual practices which have that character. Mm-hmm. But you come a point where the struggle itself becomes the problem. Yes. And then the practice taps out. I, I was going to say, you know, I've encountered this in some people who have practiced certain things over a long period of time. And they never, in some cases, these individuals are involved in pretty intense self-observation, critique of oneself, really uh, paying a lot of attention to behaviors and whatnot. And they've developed a lot of self-knowledge. But they, they get to a certain point where they have that, but they can't at that point say, well, maybe I have achieved something here and I can move on. So they spend a great deal of their time beating themselves up, constantly, constantly doing this. And that's where they're stuck at. Because while there may have been some value in being honest with themselves about about various types of imperfections or deformities, um, they never got beyond that particular aspect of practice. It never got to the point where they're saying, okay, I know what's going on here. I have knowledge now. And I can step out of this and go on someplace else. And I, I have seen that, and it's disturbing um, to see people stop at that at that point, particularly when they're when they're damaging themselves. And I believe that we may have lost Bishop Tim. But I've just come back. Because You've just come back. Oh, okay. There you go. I don't know what you heard, but I was just basically saying that there are people who will get stuck at this point, never go any further, almost as if they're afraid that if they abandon the constant self-critique that they're going to slide back. Unfortunately, what happens is they're stuck there and they never move forward. Exactly. And And it's something a lot more actualized. Such a critical phase. Such a critical phase. Actually acknowledging acknowledging the... the problems and issues and flaws in the content of the mind is such a critical phase. Mm-hmm. But there's a point at which you're not just acknowledging what's going on in the mind, you've entered into the same game that the archons are playing, and you're trapped in that. Yep. And so there's got to be a point at which you drop it and take a step back. And yes. that happens, I think, again and again in the spiritual journey, where you drop, you drop the current project, mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. take a deep breath, and take one step. Uh, kind of allow yourself to drop one step closer to God, to the monad, to the father. Mm-hmm. Um, or Babylon, if you'd rather, depending on, you know, who's your favorite. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> which, which trading card do you have stuck on your bedroom wall, I guess, is the question. Um, that's so critical, I think. This is, I mean, one of the things, I mean, there's one of these disputes that online Gnostics have a great deal, and that's like, is Gnosticism dualistic, or is it non-dual? Or is it monist or is it something else? And I think what Secret John's telling us is the answer is yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Yes. Because if, uh, if, we, if we see the, the, the cosmological narrative as the spiritual journey of the Gnostic told in reverse, which is a, a good way to, I think, to see it, 
mm-hmm. what we're told is that the world as we encounter it is absolutely dualistic in the initial mm-hmm. stage. Mm-hmm. And we must see that there's a huge difference between the material world to which our senses are drawn and the mm-hmm. inner world which we've been ignoring, that we've been distracted from by the material world. Right. Mm-hmm. So we first turn our attention from the material world to the inner world, and then we begin to acknowledge the structure of the inner world. And we start to acknowledge its difficulties and the flaws and all the cracks and hardship that go on in the inner world. And then we have to acknowledge that there's a dualism between that inner world, which is all characterized by trouble and strife, and momentary flashes of the pure perfection of the, the pleroma, of the, of the fullness. Mm-hmm. And that, that's also in a dualistic relationship. And you have to acknowledge the dualism, or you never try to get past the, you know, cross that, that gap. Then ultimately, as the attention starts to drop from this world of trouble and strife and let go of it, then we drop into a sense of the perfection of all existence. Not the, not the, not the transient relative perfection of our social circumstances as, as we land in them, because they're obviously not, right? Right. And yet there's a deep, there's a deep immediate perfection to the cosmos as it's unfolding in this present moment. And recognizing that requires letting go of dualism itself and resting in the bosom of the Father, to become hidden with Christ in God, in the words of someone I can't remember, but I love the phrase. <laughs> so there's a, point at which, there's a point at which the dualism is resolved in non-duality mm-hmm. and the spirituality of struggle is resolved in the spirituality of acceptance. Each of those moves is about a surrender, a, a letting go of what was motivating us before and a, and a release into a new way of seeing things. And those shifts are dramatic. That's, this is dark night territory. You let go of the world, the entire world as you saw it up until this point. And in, in, in the immediate moment that that happens, in the time that that's happening, that can seem like you're letting go of your whole sense of, of what's mattered to you. Mm-hmm. in favor of darkness and something that you don't know. But ultimately that resolves into a deeper sense of reality as it's unfolding. So this is hence contemplation, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> hence contemplation. This is why um, my preference is towards styles of spiritual practice that are more about letting go and more about surrender and less about um, filling the mind up with with good ideas or filling the mind up with virtuous um, chant or, uh, or doing various things, actually, and actually undertaking, you know, mental activities. Mm-hmm. Um, those things are all have their place and they're all useful, but I think ultimately there comes a point at each stage of this where the, you need a period of, of simply letting go of your mind as you understand it and allowing yourself to drop into a deeper sense of who you are. Because that deeper sense is where you begin to encounter that original perfect nature which we're gifted through the the saving work of Barbalo and the formation of the human soul through the mediation of epinoia <laughs> sorry raving <laughs> no not, not at all not at all um i just want to circle back a little bit but when you were talking a bit about the kind of prayers that we often say and um, one of the things that interested me is we were talking about you know people who fall to their knees and, and beg and ask for things um, a couple of things occurred to me. First of all, if you are not entirely sure who you're praying to, you may be offering up an awful lot of information that that entity can use against you. 
Uh, you know, it, it occurred sure. to me. You know, you know, whatever anything you you say can can and will be used against you. Um, there's something to be said for a contemplation that does not involve articulation of what may be very skewed thoughts and desires, because once they're spoken, an awful lot you can do an awful lot with them, and anything else around you can do an awful lot with that. Um, that can be that can further your imprisonment. Yeah, it's an interesting idea. Um, just kind, something kind of like kind of like your Santa note getting intercepted <laughs> by the local mafia boss. Yes, <laughs> exactly. I mean, there's a lot that can go on with that. So um, the idea of, of contemplation, particularly when one is in, uh, I'm not going to try this next time when I have an anxiety attack, maybe just trying contemplation rather than articulating my distorted thoughts and see where that gets me, and I will let everybody know if that is successful. Uh, but the other thing back. is, um, you know, I was raised to, to pray um, to always, if you ask God for something, say, if it is your will. Well, that's a very curious thing because, again, if you are praying to a distorted idea of God or a distorted uh, deity, um, praying for its will, you're really putting yourself in the thick of things because its will ha may have absolutely, likely will have nothing to do with what is in your best interest. Or my best interest, and so um, you've given me some ideas here about about prayer and structuring prayer, um, such that eh, a little bit of self defense on one hand, but also the, the the notion that we might want to consider just our own conceptions of God and what we are praying to. We got in this a little bit on our show about the demiurge, mm -hmm. and um, talked about having a background with a, a fundamentalist God who was an angry sky wizard. And is right. peeved, mm -hmm. and right. uh, if you're if you're praying to that entity, whether or not it objectively exists, you, you're going to you're you're going to be you're going to alter your behavior in response to it. So I thank you for that, and uh, the contemplation may be uh, an antidote. Yeah, this has always been my concern with divination, and we've talked about this over and over. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But you know, between this group especially, uh, the. You know, when when you're asking the spirits, for lack of a better term, for an answer to a question, right? You the you don't necessarily uh, know which level. If you have a Gnostic worldview, you don't know which group of entities is actually going to give you that answer. Mm -hmm. It could be a, a group of entities that, um, at the very at the very least, just doesn't have your best interest at heart, mm -hmm. and so. Um, you know, I don't have a good answer for that personally. I haven't, uh, you know, I haven't quite come to a conclusion on it. But there's, you know, there's 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 a reason to be cautious. I think. Well, there's a reason. There's a reason that all the, I mean, you know, most of the serious works in in Renaissance evocation magic always have you summoning the spirit and then testing the spirit to make sure that yeah. you, what you you know you, you you're talking to someone that's going to give you good advice. Right. Otherwise, mm -hmm. otherwise you're sauntering up to the first person. You know, sauntering up to the tallest person you can see at the food court at the local shopping mall and asking them where to invest your finances. Yeah, <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. There's an interesting, uh, which doesn't make any sense. So there's, there's an interesting style of divination. It's a, a Roman, an ancient Roman divination. I and I forget what it's called, and our our listeners will certainly know and tell us on Facebook, but it, it involves going to the oracle and asking a question and then leaving, and then the first thing you hear upon walking out into the street is the answer. Mm -hmm. You know, and it reminds me a lot of that. It's like, okay, uh, so that's the first thing I, I heard. So, uh, you know, it's always the loudest true. voice. Yeah. Hmm. 
Mm. Absolutely. I think there's there's a dimension of this that I think. So, okay, I'm, I'm going to articulate possibly my most controversial point of view on the Secret Book of John. Oh, good. Oh, good. Um, it's after dark, right? So we're all good. Not I for think, you. It's the middle of the day. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah, it's the darkness of my own soul. I'm enmeshed in Tony. Mm. Um, I don't think we're bound. I think the good thing with scripture, and I can't see John as scripture. I think the good thing with scripture is that it continues to speak to us fresh each each moment we read it. Mm-hmm. Lainey, you said you said that before, essentially, but I think it continues to speak fresh to us in each era. I yeah. don't think we're restricted to understanding this book. It's good to un- try to understand this book from within the thought world of the people that probably wrote it. But I don't think that needs to restrict our interpretation of it. We're also free to look at the book and what it's telling us with a mind that's informed by our own time. Okay, so the reason I'm saying that is there's a critical moment in the cosmological narrative where Sophia decides that she's going to create without the consent of her partner or consort. It varies a little bit, and it's not really clear who exactly that is. Maybe it's another of the Aeons, maybe it's the first father. Um... And she makes this creation and finds it hideous. It has a lion's face and its eyes flash like fire, I think. And then it says, curiously, she casts it from her and hides it. I think, I think I've got this correct. Hides it in a cloud behind a throne. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I just love this image of, of, oh, I don't like my baby. I'm going to put it behind a chair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's, that's not what the text means, obviously. She's, they, it's using thrown in a different sense, but I, I, I think it's a funny image. So the, the very first thing that happens is she, she has this offspring and then she abandons it, mm-hmm. right? So it's, when we talk about the error of Sophia, is, that she decides to, is, it, is it that she decides to have the offspring or is it the very first thing that she does to it, abandon it, deny its existence and try to pretend that never happened? And kind of, it's sort of implied she kind of just wanders off to do something else for a while. Mm-hmm. So this offspring grows up without any love in its life. So coming from a modern mind, I mean, I don't know what how that looked to somebody in the first or second century, but coming from where I'm coming from, that's kind of horrifying. So there's this neglected, abandoned child who grows up and then starts creating this world in which it tries to control absolutely everything. And this is unsurprising because we know kids that have grown up in circumstances like that. Yes. And off, and that's that's often one of the outcomes. This is a that's a classic. Early neglect and trauma is a, is a classic indicator for, for various kinds of psychosis and narcissistic personality disorder and borderline disorders and all kinds of terrible things, right? So the, the kind of stuff that the Demiurge gets up to is comparatively sane, given its upbringing. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the reason this is a controversial point of view is that if we bring that modern sort of developmental psychological lens to the, to the situation of, the, of this, you know, terrible dictator of the spiritual world, I think a legitimate approach to both the Demiurge and the Archons could be, rather than, you're evil and I ban you from my sight, evil spiritual creature, and more, oh, you poor thing, come here for a cuddle. <laughs> oh, there, there. Oh, come on. Oh, just just have a little nap. It's going to be okay. Now, that, that might seem absurd, right? Because a, a whole thing about difficult spiritual entities is we're supposed to put them into tri- you know, Solomonic triangles and adjure yeah. them in the name of Jesus Christ to be able to do etc 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 but this is that in, in, in all of the spiritual work that I've done 
what a theme that comes up for me over and over again is every time you shift from an adversarial stance to something that's gentler, mm-hmm. that's more loving, that brings more compassion either to yourself or to an aspect of yourself or to the person that you're having a, a some kind of disruptive relationship with, the the gentler, more loving, more compassionate approach is the one that makes a difference. That's what shifts things. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think that's got some interesting parallels in this book. It's, the, the book certainly doesn't tell us to do that. In fact, it yeah. strongly implies that you ought to, you know, beat things up and chain them in the corner because that was appropriately how you treated abandoned children in the first century. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I think we have options, and I think that's an interesting option. I think, you know, I think it's interesting. I mean, a um, couple of responses is that one of the things is I begin to wonder just what the hell Sophia was expecting mm-hmm. when she decided to go off and do this all on her own. And then she didn't like what her baby looked like. And I think Tal Rosamond Miller has talked about this quite a bit. You know, what if she hadn't decided to abandon uh, the demiurge behind the throne? What if she had, had nurtured it? Um, mm. Because, of course, we learn how to be human from our parents. Mm-hmm. And I would, I would argue that the demiurge would have learned how to be a god from, or a divine being from its mother, who, would, which, who was a divine being. So, um, yes, I mean, there, there, there may have been a very serious error, and one does really, again, wonder what the heck she was expecting. And was was her shame because it wasn't pretty? Was it was her shame because she realized that she had acted independently? Is somebody imposing that on the story? I I, I can't I can't say that. It's um, very difficult to piece it apart. I, I, well, I think one of the I mean this is back to the the endless obsession with critique that's in this yeah. book. Um, and I think one of the things that's that's being critiqued is the that kind of that defective maternal child relationship. Um, that's counterpointed with the the functioning mother-child relationship that you see in the higher realm, yes. and that mm-hmm. we see repeated, and that we see repeated in the nativity of Christ. Yes, in the birth of Seth, in this case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, but, but then you know we we go back to um, what to do what to do with the demi what to do with the archons, and and if these are essentially a. a, a the neglected children who have this kind of damage. You know, I know I've read quite a bit about people who have tried to work with children from mm-hmm. orphanages, Eastern European orth- orphanages, for example, where many times these children are completely neglected. And it requires a great deal of wisdom. It's not just let me give you a cuddle because the, a child who's been terribly damaged like that will ignore it, will, will take advantage of that situation and make things far worse and end up destroying you in the process. But it's this yeah. constant, the, the people who are able to work with these kids have a constant renewing of wisdom. You yeah. know, they, they, they recognize their limitations, they step back, they get respite care, they learn more, they come back. And they, they continue this ongoing process we were talking about earlier of yeah. the, the art of being a student. They become a student of these children as well as of themselves. And then they recognize their deficiency. They learn more. They work with the kid. Again, we, we have to go back and forth, back and forth. And that eventually healing can happen. Yeah. It's not a, it's not, I mean, all in all, it's not a bad metaphor for the spiritual journey, is it? No, not at all. No. Not at all. <laughs> 
So I think that that, that that's a very uh, that that is a very interesting approach, and it's one um, the issue of a, of compassion we've talked about a little bit that you don't you don't have to feel sorry for something to have compassion for it. You don't have to ex- make excuses for something to have compassion for it. We can talk about the archons and the demiurge being um, being ignorant and uh, abusive and like our jailers, but we can also have compassion. What must it be like to be that? You know, we have the saying, it sucks to be you. Well, it must really suck to be a demiurge. (laughs) It must really suck to be an archon. That is a horrific way of being. And as humans, we have the capacity to have no good from evil. Mm. We have that. We don't always use it, but we have that capacity. It's something that we got um, from Mother Eve. So, uh, we can have compassion. It doesn't necessarily prescribe a course of action. But if the compassion is there, we, we might find the start of some wisdom in, in our compassion. That's beautifully put, Lainey. I, I really think that's, that's, that's exactly the right way to see it. And I, I, think, I think the other thing that's essential, the other thing that's essential is to recognize that the, those things that you're recognizing in the, the actions of the Archons and the Demiurge are um, aspects that are mirrored in your own soul. Yes. That the, these, this, these abandoned, lost, damaged aspects of, of what we're told is the cosmos are mirrored in these damaged, lost, abandoned aspects in our own mind that, that we bring with us from, you know, whatever, whatever it doesn't matter what childhood you have. <laughs> There's stuff in there that, that feels like it didn't get enough love or mm-hmm. feels like it, you know, wasn't seen or wasn't understood. And we bring all that stuff with us to the beginning of our journey as adults. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the, to some extent, I think the, the, the ask in terms of having love and compassion for the archons is a way of kind of externalizing the necessary love and compassion we need to bring to these broken aspects of ourselves. I'm, I'm often, one of the things I often teach students when I teach um, contemplative prayer is that if you live in a world where you spend all of your time self-deprecating your what you see as your flaws, then that's usually balanced by a great deal of self-indulgence. Yes. What we're called to, I think, in spiritual life is to replace self-deprecation with self-compassion and to replace self-indulgence with self-discipline. Mm-hmm. But those things always go in pairs. You can only be self-compassionate if you're applying enough self-discipline to keep it in balance. Because that stops self-compassion turning into self-indulgence. But you can only have self-discipline if you're applying enough self-compassion to keep it in balance, because otherwise self-discipline can turn into self-criticism. And self-abuse. And self-abuse, exactly. And this is, you know, back to the example you were talking about before of of people that you've run into that, that have stuck with a a particular practice for perhaps a little too long and it slid very much into that place. Yeah. We see it in spiritual leaders all over the place who, who yeah. have very, you know, very strict spiritual views and then you, you know, later discover they've been taking off to motel rooms with hookers and taking a lot of meth, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with that, of course, but... <laughs> <laughs> well... I don't know what meth is one of those. Well, I'm not going to get into that. But. Let's not get into it. Let's, it is <laughs> let's just not go dark, there. Let's stay away from meth. Um, yes, and I, I think that the, I think that's beautiful. I think you know depre- de- self-deprecation can lead to self-indulgence, whereas self uh, self-compassion can lead to self-discipline. 
Um, I think for one thing, if you have compassion for yourself, you're going to recognize the need for discipline. Whereas if you're constantly down on yourself, you're going to seek comfort somehow. And, and the comfort, and you will do that uh, unconsciously in many cases. Yeah. You're not even, not even aware of what you're doing. Um, so I, I think that, yes, I think that, that that's, that's, a, that's beautifully put. And I'd love to see you write about that at some point. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I think you've got some real insight there that I think ought to be shared. What do you th say, Father Tony? Yeah, sure. Yeah, in all, in all your free time, Your Excellency, yeah. you can just <laughs> just throw that down on paper. I've started writing. I've started writing a little bit about Secret John. Um, I've got a short study course that we've used in a couple of the local groups here in Australia um, to kind of go through the basic themes of Secret John and. I, I'm getting to a point where it's, it feels right to go back to it and start to expand it to something. Who knows? Maybe I'll turn it into a chat book. That's what you do these days, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Or a Kindle single or something. Kindle single, yeah. Yeah. Should we, um, should we mention the Gnostic Ascent stuff that we're working on? Sure. Let's do that. Uh, all right. Um, I, I mentioned this... Um, well, that's not important. So uh, for the last several years, uh, I've been working on kind of this um, uh, this theory that uh, a visionary ascent practice was kind of central to uh, ancient Gnostics, and mm -hmm. that this is a practice that we have we have lost, um, that, you know, just didn't make it through, through the ages. And um, my interest is to kind of discover something that is kind of a modern equivalent of that. Mm -hmm. um, and and uh, Bishop Tim is, is helping me with this project and, and a few other folks. And, uh, and, and we're taking the Secret Book of John kind of as our starting point. Okay. Um, we've gotten, uh, you know, we've gotten through the research stage, I think, um, although I'm finding new stuff every day to add to my list of things that I want to read about it. But... Um, <laughs> It, you know, you know how those things go. Uh, <laughs> but um, we're we're kind of at the point where we're looking for people who want to help us kind of beta test the very first stage of what we're trying to do. And and the first thing that we're trying to do actually is trying to um, develop a relationship with uh, Epinoia, Epinoia as the figure from the Secret Book of John, whose primary role in that in the document is to help humanity kind of understand their place in the in the grand hierarchy of of the of the Pleroma. And so um, we've developed a, little, a short little kind of prayer service that, uh, that we're looking for some help for people to do um, and, and to report back and, uh, and, and give us some help with, uh, you know, how it's going. And maybe if they've, you know, had a little chat with Epinoia, let us know what she has to say and all that stuff. So um, if anybody is interested in participating in that work, you can go to GnosticAscent.com. And uh, we've got a wiki up there, and, and just you know, shoot me an email if you want to be involved, and I will, um, I will grant your user account access to edit the wiki, and, and you can start on the prayers and and uh, and give us a hand. So I would I would encourage anybody who is interested specifically. <laughs> yeah, well, pretty much, you know, I I don't feel like I'm smart enough to do it by myself, uh, and and I certainly don't have any uh, divine being whispering in my ear or automatic writing or anything like that so what about his eminence <laughs> he doesn't he doesn't so much whisper um, 
he's a lovely man, and he's in Colorado right now. I, I'm jealous of all the fun that he's having on vacation. Um, anyway, so uh, yeah, so anyway, so GnosticAscent.com if you're interested in participating in that, and and it's it's particularly relevant today because we're talking about the Secret Book of John, and and I think that's the document that is you know has kind of the best shot at showing us how to get there um from a specifically gnostic point of view there are other uh other traditions that have done similar things and and certainly we look to those for inspiration but they're not exactly they, I, they don't exactly see the world the way i do so I, I think the secret book of john is you know it's great i love it yeah <laughs> requires a lot of work but that's okay yeah it does. Well, if it were easy, it'd be done already. <laughs> True. And obviously hasn't been done, so. Yeah. Despite what the New Agers have to say. Yeah. Bishop Tim, do you have any thoughts on that? You want to add? Agnostic said no. Um, not a great deal. I, I think. Well, hang on. I'm going to say that and then I'm going to say, but I do have these 12 things I want to add. Um, <laughs> I think. Um, Yeah, I mean, you spoke to me about that work. From the word, which is really not the point. Um, I think, I think just working with the text and trying to imagine how you'd um, turn it into something, you know, lightly liturgical or um, with a small amount of ritual around it that might might frame some spiritual practice, I think has been really valuable because it, it's partly some of that early stuff that, that we've got on the wiki. Um, we're treating Epinoia as something to do, something to do with the divine but also we're, we're treating her as, to some extent, also an aspect of the human being, part of the higher mind of the human being. And, I, and that kind of, that sort of um, softness over whether she's self or other, I think, is, is really important and, and quite lovely. Um, and it's also just been really pleasant. I, I wrote a couple of prayers, one to the, one to the First Father and one to Babalo. Um, and that was really fun to get a chance to take some of the some of the really ecstatic language out of the early parts of Secret John and, and turn them into something um, something kind of liturgical, some, to use them as prayer rather than simply using them as scripture, um, and to say them, actually, to sort of say that stuff out loud. Mm -hmm. I think, Lainey, you, you talked before about the, you know, one of some of the necessary things in scripture is reading it out loud, and I, it's so true with so much of the Gnostic stuff. Um, Thunder Perfect Mind is almost impossible to read silently, for instance. Oh. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I was thinking about that just a few minutes ago. But, yes, it's one of those things where um, it, it, it almost – well, in a lot of cases, these things were being read out loud anyways. Uh, yeah. And so people didn't have – they didn't have printing presses. You don't – nobody – I don't think anybody, everybody had their own papyrus. It, it would have been read out loud. And as a professional writer, I know there's an enormous difference between writing for reading and writing for speech. Yeah, uh, so sure. right there, there's, a, there's already a stylistic difference there. But 
yeah, the, the reading it out loud is so important. I, I even heard, and I, I can't say whether I know this is true or not, but uh, somebody uh, wrote um, that your subconscious mind uh, doesn't necessarily know how to read English, but it can understand it if it's spoken. I, I don't know whether that's true or not, but I think that there is, there is a different way, nonetheless, of taking in information that you're hearing versus what you're reading. Mm-hmm. And so um, you're giving yourself... Uh, an advantage if you're reading it out loud. And I, again, as I suggested earlier, the importance of reading in a group and having somebody read to you and listening to them, I think, is also important. Absolutely. Yeah, I strongly agree. Well, that seems like a pretty good place to stop. So we don't get into a whole other thing. <laughs> oh, boy. Yes. Sorry. Sorry, Father. No, no, it's fine. It, you know, always a great conversation and... and um, you know, a subject that's very near and dear to my heart. So, I, I definitely appreciated it, and it was nice to just kind of sit back and listen and absolutely experience the whole thing. Um, so anyway, so uh, I, let's let's wrap it up there. We're getting close to our hour. Um, anybody have any like real quick final thoughts they want to add before we re- close it out? All right, hearing none. I guess. Okay. I guess. Well, just really quickly, um, it occurred to me that we've talked quite a bit about contemplation, and I, I, I guess I haven't said what exactly I mean when I say it. <laughs> so um, if you've made it this far. <laughs> so if you've made it this far. I, I, I guess I'd just say for people, I mean, anybody who knows me, um, anybody who's seen me speak at, at Conclave and the AJC will, will know probably what I'm about to say. But for, for folks that don't, um, the simplest the simplest way to get access to what I'm talking about when I'm talking about contemplation is to, to read some stuff about centering prayer. Um, I think so there's a, there's a great book by a woman called Cynthia Bourgeau, B O U R G E A U L T. Yes. Um, She's wonderful. (laughs) She's wonderful. And she has two great books. One's called wisdom Jesus and one's called gosh, the introduction of centering prayer. It's got centering prayer in the title anyway. Um, there's a ton of good stuff on YouTube um, about how to do it. Uh, there's a, there's those good those two books by Cynthia Bourgeau and Open Mind, Open Heart by Father Thomas Keating. Um, any of which will give you a. It's a very simple practice to learn, um, but it's one of those things that you know you, you spend the rest of your life trying to sort of deepen into it. Um, so yeah, if any if anybody's interested in more of that, feel, please feel free to get in touch with me, and I'll I'll hook you up with some resources. And she's also got some videos on YouTube as well. So, and she studied the fourth way, just so everybody knows. Indeed, she has. She's got a. I think she's got a fourth way book coming out at the minute. So, uh, she's well. She already has one out about the uh, Holy Trinity and the Law of Three. She may have another one coming out. So it's it's. Uh, but she's she's quite remarkable. She's in a one of the first waves of uh, female Episcopal priests in That's the United right. States. So yeah, quite remarkable woman. Mm-hmm. All right. Well. Great. Thank you once again, Bishop Tim. I'm not, I don't mean to be dismissive of just looking at the clock no, here. Yeah. We're sorry, Father. No, no, it's fine. It's fine. I like it. Uh, so, yeah, thank you, Bishop Tim, for joining us. Uh, thank, thank you. you so thank much. you very much. All the way from Thanks the future. Thanks for having me. It's been lovely. All the way from the future. <laughs> All right. And uh, for those of you listening along at home, we'll see you next week. Take care, everybody. Good night, everyone. Good This has been a production of the Gnostic NYC Network. For more information about this and all of the Gnostic NYC Network's programming, visit GnosticNYC.com. The opinions expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Gnostic NYC, Talk Gnosis, or any other organization. This podcast has been released under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 4.0 International License. 
Thank you.